Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Welcome back to another installment of Across the Street. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sunil Rao, who y'all have heard from before, so we're going to do kind of a mini update based on what he spoke about last time. You guys probably already know Dr. Rao, but he is an interventional cardiologist and professor of medicine at Duke and the chief of cardiology at the Durham VA. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Rao. Thanks for having me, Dr. Caputo. One of the things that we spoke about last time was the use of the high sensitivity troponin, which I'm sure the residents have noticed is getting more and more popular to the point where that's sort of our main lab test when we're thinking about acute coronary syndrome. So Dr. Rao, is there still any role for CK and CKMB in identifying ACS? Do we even need to check those anymore? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think what's happened is that we're starting to be able to detect smaller and smaller levels of myocardial injury with our current tests. Really, I think the role for CK and CKMB is somewhat historic. I mean, you know, I'll give you one sort of special case scenario where uh, we're still not really sure how to interpret high sensitivity troponin. And that's in the context of, you know, periprocedural MI as it relates to bypass surgery and percutaneous coronary intervention in the setting of a randomized clinical trial. So for many of our randomized trials, paraprocedural MI as an endpoint has traditionally been based on CK, CKMB, but in the high sensitivity troponin era, it's become very, very challenging to figure out which myocardial injury events really are meaningful in the context of that trial. For clinical care, really, I think CK and CKMB are outdated and really should not be checked anymore. I think high sensitivity troponin is here, it's the wave of the future, and I think as probably many of your listeners know, it's really not about the absolute value or whether it's above the threshold. It's really about that delta and, and whether that delta meets the criterion for someone who has high probability for acute coronary syndrome. Right. And we're looking at a 20% change one way or the other. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And so how far apart would you check troponins in someone who you're really concerned about, Dr. Rao? So there are a bunch of different, you know, rapid rule out algorithms. I mean, I think, you know, the studies have varied. You can do a couple of values a couple of hours apart. I think generally what we've tried to implement is somewhere in the four to eight hour range. We try to check serial troponins, but I think in the ED, you can do it relatively rapidly, again, to try and get what that delta is so that it helps you with triage. You know, one article I think I should probably point out is by Alex Fanaroff, who is one of our fellows. He's now at Penn as an interventional attending. He has a really nice paper looking at a risk model to determine who will require ICU admission and without spending a lot of time on the details of that, it's a very nice, robust risk model that we implemented at Duke to try and determine who should go to the CCU and who can actually be managed just on step-down telemetry. So let's say that we diagnose someone with ACS. What are our P2Y12 options for loading someone who's on their way to the cath, and how do we choose among them? You know, that's a really good question. And I think it, let's take a step back and talk about the issue of preloading. What we mean by preloading is implementation of a loading dose of P2Y12 inhibitor before the patient goes to the cath lab. That's what preloading really is, with the pre being before the patient goes to cath. And the reality is there really are no strong data supporting the strategy of preloading versus treating the patients after you've defined their coronary anatomy in the cath lab. There have been a couple of randomized trials that have tried to look at the preloading issue, and really they've shown no difference between preloading and loading once the anatomy is known. So with that caveat in mind, you know, that's why there's a tremendous amount of variability across facilities about, you know, who preloads and who doesn't. 
About 65% of the centers the last time I looked, and it may have changed now, tend to load their patients before they go to the cath lab. The balance don't load before they go to the cath lab. And again, given the state of the data, it's hard to say that one group is right and one group is wrong. Having said that, if you are considering preloading, you know, the, the P2Y12 inhibitor choices that are oral currently are clopidogrel, which is, you know, now generic, uh, prasugrel, which I, also, I believe is also generic, and then ticagrelor. Of those three, only two have been studied in a randomized trial where preloading, that is giving the loading dose before the patient goes to the cath lab, was part of the protocolized strategy. And that's clopidogrel and ticagrelor. Prasugrel was studied in a randomized trial where patients were loaded with the drug once the coronary anatomy was known. That is, they underwent cath. Once it was determined that they were gonna you know, be treated with either uh, PCI or medical therapy, the vast majority of those patients got PCI. They were then randomized to get them getting the loading dose of prasugrel versus clopidogrel. So if you're thinking about preloading, that is before the patient goes to the cath lab, you really have two options, it's clopidogrel or ticagrelor. And in the ticagrelor randomized trial, which is PLATO, ticagrelor was superior to clopidogrel with respect to the long-term incidence of death, MI, or stroke. Again, the randomization there was between the drug, not to preloading versus not. So again, if you are someone who believes in preloading, you work at a facility that uh, believes in preloading, and you have a choice between those two, ticagrelor is clearly associated with a better outcome with respect to ischemic events, but a higher risk of bleeding. It's a more potent antiplatelet agent. So now, why would you consider not preloading? Like, what's the downside, right? So the downside is that most of these drugs irreversibly bind the platelet. So they're stuck on the platelet for the lifetime of the platelet. What that means is that there is an increased risk of bleeding, particularly in the surgical setting. <clears throat> and where this becomes relevant is that patient who comes in with acute coronary syndrome, who goes to the cath lab and has disease that requires bypass surgery. And if you look at the landscape of the patients right now, it's somewhere around 10 to 12% of those patients will have uh, such severe coronary disease that need, they need bypass surgery. Well, in those patients, you're gonna have to wait until the drug washes out. Right now, there is no reversal agent that's commercially approved. There are a couple of reversal agents that are being tested in clinical trials, but nothing right now. You just have to wait for the patient to generate new platelets to replace the ones that have the drug bound on them, and that takes about five to seven days. Many centers have decided that they don't want to preload. They say, we're, going to, you know, we're taking most of our case, patients to the cath lab anyway within 24 hours. We're going to know the anatomy. We'll then determine whether the patient should be loaded or not. You know, these are the issues that you have to think about when you're thinking about using P2Y12 inhibitors upstream in a patient with acute coronary syndrome. Okay, that was really helpful. Thank you. So what about after the cath? Because we've seen an increased number of patients who are coming back to us on the floor on aspirin and prasugrel. How do we decide yeah. which patients would be best treated that way? Great question. So first, oftentimes, you know, we're all creatures of habit, right? So we tend to continue whatever the patient was loaded with. But having said that, there now is a randomized trial done by a group in Germany. It's a multicenter randomized trial that compared ticagrelor versus prasugrel in a group of acute coronary syndrome patients, all of whom got dented. And in that trial, the, the sort of top line results were that prasugrel was associated with a better ischemic outcome with no difference in bleeding. Now, you gotta delve into the details of this study. It's an open label trial. There's a lot of dropout in the study. So, you know, is it really better than what ticagrelor uh, can do? It's hard to say. I mean, certainly the top line results of the trial suggest that prasugrel may be a good alternative in patients who have undergone PCI if they come in with acute coronary syndrome. The caveats with prasugrel really are that the bleeding risk is quite high. It's a more potent platelet inhibitor than clopidogrel, and therefore there can be an increased risk of bleeding compared even with clopidogrel. 
And that risk of bleeding, at least in the randomized trial that was done before the one in Germany, showed that there was an increased risk of fatal bleeding and that patients who were less than 60 kilograms in weight, patients who had prior stroke, or patients who were over the age of 75, you know, should avoid full-dose prasugrel. So traditionally, it hasn't been used as much in our patient population here at the VA because many of our patients are over the age of 75. They have a lot of comorbidities, including prior stroke. However, because of this new randomized trial that came out, we are starting to see a little bit of an increase in the use of prasugrel, particularly in those patients who don't have the contraindications of age over 75, body weight less than 60 kilograms, or prior stroke. It's clearly a better agent than clopidogrel in terms of reducing ischemic events, as long as you use it in the right patients to make sure that the bleeding risk is not unacceptably high. So once someone has been placed on their dual antiplatelet therapy after their cath and their stent placement, how long should we keep them on that? Yeah, yeah, this is a super important question. You know, I think the guidelines still say that for acute coronary syndrome, we should treat for at least 12 months. Remember, you know, we all become very stent focused, right? I mean, we just want, we don't want that stent to clot off. But the reality is that once a patient has had an acute coronary syndrome, we know that their entire coronary tree is at risk. So what we're trying to do when we treat patients long-term with dual antiplatelet therapy is not just prevent stent thrombosis. We want to prevent recurrent MI at sites remote from the stent. So we're really treating sort of the overall atherothrombotic environment in this particular patient. And we know at least this trial study, at least 12 months, if not longer, in patients who have acute coronary syndrome. Now, there are a couple of things that I think we need to talk about that nuance that particular decision. So the default is 12 months. But what if a patient has very, very high bleeding risk? And now I was part of a group, um, an international group that defined so-called HBR or high bleeding risk. And that all came about because there are the current stents that we have now are very, very safe. So they're actually safer than bare metal stents with respect to the risk of stent thrombosis. And so in patients who have underlying cancer, who are very, very elderly and frail, who may require additional oral anticoagulation, so for atrial fibrillation, for example, could you get away with a shorter duration of antiplatelet therapy in order to minimize their bleeding risk? And the so-called HBR criteria help to define some of these patients. And in those patients, you can consider P2Y12 therapy as short as even a month. And in fact, two of the commercially available stents now have it on their labeling for short dual antiplatelet therapy. The third commercially available stent likely will get that on their labeling as well by the end of this month. So, you know, we know from a bleeding standpoint or a stent thrombosis standpoint, it's safe to do it for as short as a month. Again, we prefer 12 months. And so the second issue that nuances this is something that I already mentioned, which is what about that patient who requires oral anticoagulation? There is an epidemic of atrial fibrillation. The primary risk with atrial fibrillation is stroke. We know that anticoagulation reduces that risk significantly. Some of the newer direct oral anticoagulants are much, much safer with respect to intracranial hemorrhage compared with warfarin. There have been large randomized trials that have looked at patients who have atrial fibrillation or some underlying reason to have oral anticoagulation who have undergone PCI. And what all of these trials have shown is that a strategy of some duration of so-called triple therapy, aspirin, P2Y12, plus the oral anticoagulant, sometimes as short as just the hospitalization, sometimes as long as three months, followed by dropping the aspirin, not the P2Y12 inhibitor, but the aspirin is associated with very low rates of bleeding, 
and very low rates of stent thrombosis. And in fact, that strategy has been shown to be safer than continuing triple therapy long-term. So those are the two patient populations where you might want to think about truncating the duration of dual antiplatelet therapy, the high bleeding risk patients, so underlying cancer, upcoming surgery, very old, very frail, or the patient who requires oral anticoagulation. I will say that we generally have been putting in our notes when we do the PCI what we would prefer for that particular patient in terms of the duration of triple therapy and when to start the dual therapy. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. For the time being, though, post-PCI, the dual antiplatelet is the standard of care. It is the standard of care, 12 months for ACS, yep. There have been a couple of randomized trials presented over the last and published over the last few years that have looked at acute coronary syndrome patients undergoing PCI and using dual antiplatelet therapy for some period of time and then stopping the aspirin. So these are not patients who require oral anticoagulation. These are patients who have sort of garden variety ACS who get stented, and then at one to three months, depending on what trial you're looking at, they stop the aspirin and continue the potent P2Y12. So these are not clopidogrel trials. These are trials with ticagrelor. So, you know, very potent antiplatelet agent, more potent than clopidogrel. And what these trials seem to show is that it does not seem to inhibit the ischemic efficacy, but is much, much safer in terms of bleeding than continuing dual antiplatelet therapy long-term. Now, these trials, I don't know if they're going to make it into the guidelines. You know, there are smaller trials. They're not, you know, necessarily powered for ischemic events, but really powered for safety. But it's an interesting strategy. We generally have been putting in our notes when we do the PCI what we would prefer for that particular patient in terms of the duration of triple therapy and when to start the dual therapy. So I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that cardiology does need to be involved in approved triple therapy while in-house, and certainly if we discharge patients on triple therapy. And it sounds like we would do the shortest duration possible. Last question for you, Dr. Rao. So what about the role of colchicine after ACS? Which patient should be considered for colchicine therapy, and who should we avoid it in? Yeah, so colchicine has had some really exciting times lately. And so it's funny, you know, it's an old drug, obviously, that we used to use a lot for gout. I don't think we're using it much anymore, but it's found new life as an anti-inflammatory in the setting of patients who've had myocardial infarction. There have been a couple of trials now, a couple that are neutral or negative for colchicine, others that have been very positive. The challenge with colchicine, as you know, is that it's hard to tolerate. It can cause a lot of GI upset and diarrhea. So there was a recent trial coming out of Australia looking at low-dose colchicine in acute coronary syndrome, again, showing a benefit with respect to a composite ischemic endpoint. There's a very, very large post-MI trial going on right now called Clear Synergy that will probably be the definitive study on whether colchicine is going to be something that we're going to use routinely. Right now, there really are no recommendations about which patients post-ACS should get colchicine, with the exception of those who develop pericarditis uh, as a consequence of a large MI. Now, we don't see this much anymore in the uh, reperfusion era, you know, now that everyone's going to the cath lab rapidly with an ST elevation MI. Back when I trained, when, you know, some patients still wouldn't go to the cath lab or presented very late, you'd still see some Dressler syndrome or post-MI pericarditis, and we would use colchicine in those patients. It's very effective. We know that it's also very effective in idiopathic pericarditis. But as far as ACS goes, we haven't had that definitive trial yet that tells us that we should be using it. And I think those data are coming. It'll probably be a couple of years off before we see that. I should also mention that there's a really interesting trial being led by a Canadian group with a lot of U.S. involvement looking at the use of colchicine in patients with COVID-19. So that's called cold corona. And again, very interesting hypothesis. Again, it's an interesting drug. 
The mechanism of action may turn out to be beneficial in ACS, but again, we have to wait. So right now, really no recommendation around colchicine in the post-ACS population. A lot of things that are up and coming, though, it sounds like. This is an exciting field. Yes, things always change. And, you know, like I said, if, you, if you're kind enough to have me back in a year or so, we may be talking about totally different things. Dr. Rao, if you're kind enough to come back, you always have an open invitation. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, I'd like to remind the residents to refer to the original podcast by Dr. Rao to get an idea of what we're talking about. And then also check out your curriculum website for some references to some of the papers that Dr. Rao mentioned. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.